0: On today's episode of Way Too Interested, actor, writer, and all-around awesome person Danny Fernandez talks about wolves. Let's go.
1: So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested, way too interested.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Way Too Interested. I'm Gavin Purcell, and this is my new podcast where I talk to interesting people and find out something that they're currently obsessed with outside of their everyday life. Then the two of us talk to an expert in that subject matter and do a deep dive and learn a whole lot more. It's a show about creativity, curiosity, discovery, and most importantly, pursuing those little things that get stuck in the back of our brain that become way more interesting than we ever expected. Um, As I said, my name is Gavin Purcell, uh, and I'm learning a lot about this as I go along. Uh, Speaking into a microphone is not entirely new to me, but it is definitely still fairly foreign to do this with nobody else in the room, which is a fascinating thing. This is my fifth episode, I think, at this point. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a super fun experience for me, and I hope you're learning a lot along the way. So each week at the top of each show, before we get into the expert conversation, I talk a little with my guest about creativity, discovery, and a bunch of other things, trying to find out a little bit more about what makes them tick and where they go to find new things. As I've said before, I'm a big believer in uh, pursuing and following our interests and learning that those are the things that will make us better. And today's episode is really interesting because... Um, The subject matter for our guest kind of came out of of a pretty difficult situation but really opened up a pretty big awesome area for her um, our guest today is Danny Fernandez, who, if you're not familiar with, is an actress. She's a writer. She's a performer. She's a host. Um, she knows a lot about nerd culture. She's done an amazing job of kind of building this cool brand and has been in a bunch of things and is a very awesome Twitter user. And before we go too far, here are three very interesting things about Danny to me. Okay, number one, for someone who lives so much of her life in public, Dani is remarkably open about issues around mental health. uh, And she's often been an advocate for mental health across all of the social media platforms she's on. It is something we talk a little bit about in this episode. Um, I'm often inspired by her Twitter work that she does. She does a lot of uplifting of people there, and I think that's a pretty incredible thing. Number two, I do seem to mention Twitter a lot in this podcast overall. I'm a pretty heavy user of it, but I do want to shout out her Twitter feed, and it is it is truly something special. She's one of the people that I point to when I say what the platform can be and what it should be, and you should all be following her there at Miss Dani Fernandez. That's M-S-D-A-N-I-F-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z. Number three, finally, uh, Danny got to play an animated version of herself in the movie Ralph Breaks the Internet, which, if you haven't seen, is excellent. I highly recommend it. It's you know it's a kids movie, but it's very very good on internet culture, especially viral video culture. It does a great job of skewering um, viral video in general. Additional shout out to my friend Sarah Silverman for her solo princess song uh, in the film, which is called a, Sorry. It's called a place called Slaughter Race, which is incredibly moving for a song about a place where, uh, cars kill each other. All right, let's get to it. Here's my interview with Danny Fernandez and then stick around for the second part of the show where the two of us talk to an expert on wolves. Welcome so much to Danny Fernandez. Thank you for being here on way too interested. I'm really, really excited to have you here.
2: I am so excited to do this. I am, I'm very interested in the thing that we're talking about.
0: Fantastic. Well, I want I wanted to kind of say, um, I don't know you in person, but I've become a big fan of you on Twitter and we kind of are mutual follows there. So I, I am a fan of your work. Um, one thing I've been talking to people about in this podcast a little bit is, you know, really this is about kind of discovering new things and kind of figuring out how do you satiate curiosities or discover new things. So what, what do you do to, when you discovering new things? How do you discover stuff?
2: Oh my gosh. I mean, I guess in some weird way, social media, which is how you and I met. Um, But I think you really curate what you see. You really do. And so... I started to make this shift to really follow people and things that inspire me and because I mean to be honest we're on there we get our we get our weekly update if you have an iPhone like every Sunday it tells you your screen time you know and I'm, I I don't know if you can opt out of that but you're seeing that every single day for hours on end so for me I actually I follow a ton of art accounts like that is one of my things I follow of course I follow a lot of animals a lot of like animal rescue or like cute animals baby animals, all the babies, but I follow a ton of art and like filmmaking and short horror like stuff. Cause I find that just so fascinating. And so then you're discovering they repost other artists and like that just, that's like a different world that I think is so cool to get to see every day. And, or I also follow a lot of mental health advocates and people in the community. And so they're constantly reminded, it's something that I need to see their quotes and they're like you know not taking things personally sometimes or or practicing forgiveness like all those things that take a lot of skill actually that are very very difficult seeing those every single day is something that i need as opposed to just like trauma and horror constantly.
0: You know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about this with TikTok because TikTok is really based on this algorithm and about what you like. It really determines what it serves you up. And I kind of really believe that's the case in almost everything we have that comes into our lives, that you kind of really have to set up your filters. Because if you just get a a blast filter, if you're getting a ton of stuff and you're not really aware of what's coming in at you, it can A, really affect your moods, but also B it can really take you down paths that you don't necessarily want to be on. And I've tried to cultivate really a curiosity filters on both of those places. And it, it's actually the best use of social media in my mind because if you can do that, you're filling your brain up with kind of interesting simulation all the time instead of the opposite, which I feel like can sometimes be a detraction from 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 your everyday creative life.
2: Yeah, it's also, I mean, people have talked about this so much, but I mean, we're really not meant to consume that much negativity and and horrors and things that are going on, content like we're actually not meant. I was, this is so funny. I was watching A Quiet Place 2 last night and all I could think of as someone that's like a trauma survivor and talks about trauma a lot, I was like, they're so traumatized. They're not meant to be in fight or flight all the time. (laughs) Like That's what I just kept thinking of the children. That's what I do when I watch, even though I like write scary movies myself and I'm like filming a a one that I wrote soon. And like, it's so funny because when I was watching it as someone that's like lived through trauma, I'm like, they're just not, you're not supposed to be triggered like this all the time. Their body, their adrenal, must be drained. <laughs> but that's us on a smaller way on social media. <laughs> A hundred
0: percent. And that's why like I feel for me, discovering new things is a is kind of a positive pathway through life, right? Like if you can, if you can throw yourself into something, I always think it's like no matter what it is, a small thing or a big thing, if it becomes a lifetime obsession or just an obsession for the week, it's it's part distraction, which is always good, but it's also like it feeds you in an interesting way, right? It kind of makes you it shows you a depth to things that I don't think are there if you don't find those.
2: Yeah. I also think it just is. I think it's so cool to be invested in something that you're not necessarily making money from. I feel as artists, we're always... That's why when you hit me up, it was like it couldn't be something like career related. And I was like, well, I do have one thing because I feel all my other obsessions, I've turned into, I've monetized them in some way, Um, whether it's being like an anime or sci-fi or, you know, geek nerd or whatever. And then I went on to host for a lot of those channels that, and write on some of those shows and stuff. So I've definitely you know, I don't have anything to unwind. And you should, it shouldn't just be career related. You know, your passions should just not be things that make you money.
0: A hundred percent. And I think that's part of what I think Sometimes I do too much of this, right? Like it's it's a little bit of like how do you how do you kind of balance between like an ADD kind of world and like going deep on one thing? How do you how do you determine that? Like I, you know, we're gonna talk about what you're obsessed with for today in just a bit, but how do you know when you're like getting into something in a real way? Like when you feel like you want to go further in?
2: Oh, I guess it's just something that I would do regardless if it made me money or not, and like something that just like does bring me joy, something that honestly, when I need a distraction, it's like, I, it's so funny because I think people think that as television or film writers, like we, we do consume a lot of media, but sometimes I find it very triggering because I can never just sit and watch something. And I'm like, oh, well, I know the producer. I know this actor. I also auditioned for this role. This writer is actually, you know, not such a great person, this, you know, and so it's actually nice to disconnect from that. So, and, you know, have passions that are outside of film and television. When I need to get away from film and television, what do I go to? I think is how I discover that it's a passion.
0: Great. Well, let's uh, transition into what you're here to talk about. So, as uh, the people, listeners of the show know, the show is about people's side obsessions outside of their regular everyday world. So, Danny Fernandez, what are you way too interested in?
2: I am Danny Fernandez, and I'm way too interested in wolves.
0: Yes, this is a good one. I am yes. also interested in wolves. Um, so let's just jump into this right away. Okay. Wolves are a very, I want to say a dominant image when you say what a wolf is. People know what it is and they're very aware of it. What is your backstory on this? What? Where did this start?
2: Yeah. So I, speaking of trauma, I went to IOP, which is an intensive outpatient program. So it was uh, for people that are in crisis and it's outpatient, meaning that you don't spend the night there, that you're not hospitalized, you you come and go. But we had to be in class pretty much every, I call it a class, but like group therapy where you're learning skills and you're, you're talking about trauma and how to cope and get through them. Uh, we were there for about three to four hours every single day for six weeks. And at the end of your treatment, You, they give you a little stone with an animal, a hand-painted animal that the group thinks that you represent. So some people get a bumblebee, some people get a rabbit or a swan, and I knew they were going to give me a wolf. Like I think I said it to someone. I was like, I know they'll probably give me a wolf, and sure enough, I got this little hand-painted stone of a wolf. And what happens is, in group, they pass the stone around to each person, and they say like how you've impacted them in some way, and they read you the definition of a wolf that they believe represents you. And so I figured it would be that or an owl because I had just done so much therapy at that moment that I felt like I was one of the elders in class. <laughs> like, I felt like I had such life experience. All you know, <laughs> I haven't even been on this earth for too, too long. But like, I just felt like I had done more therapy than for some people. This was their first, you know, introduction to, to it. And so... I just felt like I knew a lot of the – and that must have come across. I felt like a lot of times I was the peacekeeper in the group as well. But I think that pack leader mentality from being, like, wiser or whatever, like, is must have been what they saw. Um, and I was also pretty – I don't want to say vicious, but I'm very <laughs> steadfast. He <laughs> laughed. I'm very steadfast in, like, standing up for people. Like, I – I can't talk too much personally about like things that would happen in group. But if someone was giving someone else a hard time, like that would trigger me to like immediately kind of be, you know, a a protector. And so I'm pretty and you follow me on social media. I have very strong morals, I feel like. And when I feel someone attacks them or, you know, some of the things that I'm speaking out against, I have claws. So I would say I'm I'm just like a wolf and that I'm, you know, furry and, you know, cute and then I definitely have claws that come out. So yeah.
0: Do you remember what the definition they gave you was?
2: Oh my gosh. You know what? It was like three pages. (laughs) I have it. I have it. Um, Yeah. It would take up like part of this, this podcast, but they read me the whole thing, but I have it in my binder that they, when you graduate, they give to you, but it was essentially those things, you know, being like a pack leader being, I think like even the ability to kind of go out on your own, you know, and take risks because that's another thing that fascinates me about wolves is that they are both can be a lone wolf we hear that all the time but they're also travel in packs you know so like maybe that's something that we can we can discuss later cuz i'm super fascinated how both of those they're seen as like pack animals but you're also seen as being a lone wolf both exist in in wolf culture so <laughs> what was the next
0: step when you got that? What what did you do after that? Or did you just dive right in or did you kind of like have it at a distance for a little while?
2: So I like about a year later, and this was during the pandemic, I was having a really hard time. It was just, we all were, it was like projects of mine were getting canceled. You know, my life I thought was about to transition into like a glorious moment. And all of a sudden, all of that came cr- crumbling down on top of me. And so in a moment of weakness, I was just spiraling so bad. And I asked the universe, I was like, show me a sign. If you want me to hang in here, I have done so much work. I've done so much trauma therapy. I wanna believe that I'm supposed to be here. So if I, if you want to basically like keep me alive, like give me a sign, I want to see a wolf. It popped into my head. I was like, I need my wolf, my sign. Wow. I kid you, not, I mean, I'm like sobbing. I opened Twitter, which you do when you're crying, you know, and the first thing on my page was Chase Mitchell, who is a writer, had quote tweeted a wolf. A random person that like had a pet wolf that he quote tweeted, I forgot what he said, but it was the first, it was in the middle of summer y'all. No reason, it wasn't like some winter, like Wonderland thing. And it was the first thing on my feed. Wow. And I was just like, why do, okay, I hear you, but why do you put me through this then? So it became my go-to sign to hang in there.
0: That's fascinating.
2: Yeah, so I started. So after that, I started to collect more memorabilia of wolves to remind me throughout my house. So I sent you one. I have like a sculpture of a wolf on my wall. I have wolf art. I just like, as I see it, I start to collect it because what that means is when I'm walking through my house, it's like a reminder to hang in there every time i'm like struggling i look up and i see like i have made my own signs <laughs> to hang in
0: i'm a huge uh, a fan of doing that i had a, I had an experience where i I've, I've done a week long silent retreat uh, at a meditation retreat and that was something i would did because like i was going through a hard time and i wanted to be able to kind of figure a lot of stuff out it's a similar sort of situation and i had a moment there where i know this sounds crazy but like you have a moment with an animal in, in that experience and it just suddenly sits with you in a much different way, right? It becomes very special. That It was a hummingbird and this is, you know, I saw a hummingbird and I saw a hummingbird stop, which i had never seen before, like stop, you know, flying and sit on a branch and then take off again. But what's so interesting about that is the symbolism of it is huge at the time. And then you can bring more to it, right? You can bring more of your own personal feeling to it and then it grows, right? And it becomes a really important thing, I think. And it, whether or not it's like mystical or not, you know, you can believe what you feel, but like, bringing your own importance to it makes a big difference, I feel like.
2: Yeah. So I started to test it out. I had to do another, I was like, you know, struggling with relationship stuff and trying to like manifest that as well. And so I was doing this like 21 day manifest challenge or whatever. And one of the things I wanted was a romantic partner. And they told you to pick a sign like that, you know, same thing to tell the universe that your partner is on the way that they're right around the corner, whatever. And I was like, I'm not going to do a wolf because now I'm so keen, Like I'm, I have such an eye for them now. I see them everywhere, but I was like, I'll do a wolf and a heart. It has to be both of them together. And I, that's what I want. So I would see wolves, you know, that day and i was like that doesn't count i don't care not gonna do it (laughs) freaking i pull up instagram as you do and by the way i'm not following like wolf accounts i like unfollowed (laughs) all of them because i was like i don't want to like accidentally see this this actor that i follow posted a vintage comic, a Tex Avery comic of the howling wolf from Tex Avery with a massive, it said wolf and red with a massive heart behind him. And he was like, whoa, I just found this in a comic book shop and it's like decades old. And I was like, what the heck? (laughs) I screamed. I actually bought the comic. I have it framed. I like bought the comic. I went on like eBay and bought it. Cause I was like, this is such a sign that like, I asked, you know, I was saying, nope, not a wolf. I want a wolf and a heart. And within 24 hours, like here is your glaring wolf heart that you wanted Danny. So I actually now also own a Tex Avery lamp of that wolf with like a heart bursting out of his chest. But yeah, for me, I mean, take it as you will, but I think it's wild to, when that first thing happened, when I was like in struggling really hard and, you know, thinking of possibly harming myself or other, you know, the reasons why I was in in treatment, I was just back in that spot. And I was like, well, I remember that everyone said all these good things about me when they were holding this thing. So I need this wolf to appear and to just see it on Twitter as the first tweet was wild. Like, I wasn't back then, I wasn't following any of those accounts. Does Chase know that
0: he that he did no, that? No,
2: no, I haven't told him. You know,
0: because I know Chase pretty well, actually. That's really funny. Maybe will, Chase, when this comes out, well, maybe he'll find out here or maybe he'll find out before. But that's awesome. That's a really, really interesting story. Well, okay, let's ask one more question before we jump in here. Um, so obviously... Wolves are, are mythical animals, right? They're they're in a lot of myths, they're in a lot of places like that. Let's talk about like kind of what you knew about wolves prior to your kind of like obsession. Like do you what's your first like memory of learning about wolves? Whether they're real wolves or 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 stories.
2: I feel like it would have to be Red Riding Hood. Right, would have to be our first. And so that's obviously kind of showing a wolf as something that's vicious and scary. But I, growing up, was so obsessed with animals. I actually wanted to be a vet until I learned that you also had to put animals down. And, you know, being 11, I was like, oh, no, um, I just want to pet them. (laughs) But I was always like trying to bring animals home, did bring a lot of animals home. And, you know, growing up in the Southwest and also in Colorado and and California, you run into coyotes and and wolves And, so, or actually there was somebody at the, this is how like LA can be like some people have wolves that they've rescued. You know, I want to say like, it's not like they've actively taken a wolf, but like they've rescued them. I remember when I was in Texas, there was a wolf at the dog park named Wolfie and they had, it was a rescue wolf. It was an actual wolf? Yes, an actual wolf. And you could tell, and they had to be, his owners had to be very on top of him. Because, you know, they still, even though they might have dog like tendencies, they are a wolf. They are a wild animal that could snap at any moment so that he had to be super trained. But, oh, it's so funny because when you see them, you're like, oh, yeah. Or you see um, Siberian Huskies, you're like, oh, they're so wolf like. Then when you see an actual wolf, you're like, oh, no, they're nothing. They're very scraggly. And
0: have you seen one in person before? Have you seen an actual wolf? I think I
2: have at, um, you know, Probably zoos. conservation. Yeah. Zoos and conservations around, around, um, the places that I've lived. And so what I know of them, I remember I was watching a documentary about dogs and it said they only have one, I think it was like 1% separation, uh, which is crazy. Cause do- you know, you can have a pug, you can have a greyhound. It's like so insane. And that they are only one, I think, percent different from wolves.
0: Yeah, it's it, what's fascinating to me because I have two big dogs and uh, one dog has aggressive issues, right? And that's always like, it's always like an interesting thing to learn about training dogs and trying to make sure that you, you they feel protective, but you feel protective of them. I'm really interested to learn more about the pack behavior stuff because right. it drives so much of wolf behavior. But, um, you know, we'll find that from our expert in a little bit. Okay, before we go to break, I want to know what you want to know from Garrick, who is our expert that's coming up in, in just a few minutes.
2: Oh my gosh. Yeah, I guess where the lone wolf like mentality started if that is an actual thing i also heard that the wolf that approaches you is actually the beta everyone thinks that's alpha but the alpha stays back and it's actually the beta that they send out as like you know it's okay if you if you get eaten or if like something happens to you like they're actually like certain i don't want to say servant but it's huh. not the alpha male that goes out uh, it's actually the i think also gender dynamics in the pack like can the women ever rule or is it like like I said an alpha male type scenario and do they have multiple mates I'm very curious about you know and I guess also some of their mythical like you said being like honored and and uh their personality traits I think that wolves have
0: I think there's going to be a lot to talk about Okay. So we will be right back. We'll be joined by Garrick Dutcher, who is the research and program director for the nonprofit Living with Wolves. Uh, And thanks a lot, Danny. We'll be back back in a second. All right. We'll be right back uh, with the second part of the show. But before we do, I've been using this section in the middle of the show uh, where you might normally hear an ad to shout out some of my favorite books that kind of lean into the subject matter here. And this time I want to talk about a classic, and many people have different feelings about this book. I think it's one of the most transformative books that you can conceivably read. Some people feel it's a little bit um, too woo-woo for them, but I don't believe it is, and I believe if you follow it, it can really open up all sorts of incredible creative and curious kind of pathways in your brain. And this book is called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. It's like about a six to eight week uh, program, essentially, when you read it, but it's very simple and I've done it probably six times over the course of my life. And you know, other big podcasters or authors or, or screenwriters or many other types of people, creative people, will also tell you the same thing. It's very simple. You get the book. You do two big things. You do morning pages. You write three. Day, you write three pages uh, longhand without really thinking about it first thing in the morning. And you do a date with yourself to kind of stimulate your inner artist. Anyway, it's hard to explain it all in a 10 second read or whatever this is, but I highly recommend it. The book is The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. and There's a bunch of other spinoffs she's written as well, but that's got the main gist of it all. So that's the book this week. Again, thank you for listening. Please um, tell people about this podcast if you like it. Also rate it on iTunes. I keep being told that's a big, that's a big thing, so please do it. Um, And with that, let's get back to the second part of our show. Um, I'm really happy that we have a pretty incredible expert here. Um, His name is Garrick Dutcher, and he is the research and program director at livingwithwolves.org and has a long life history with wildlife, but with wolves specifically, and we get into that in just a second. Enjoy. Enjoy. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Way Too Interested. This episode, we're talking with Danny Fernandez and her um, semi obsession with wolves. Uh, we're now joined by Garrick Dutcher, who is the research and program director at Living with Wolves. Um, Garrick, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Gavin. Hi, Danny. Nice to see you guys. Um, before we jump in, I'm going to let Danny ask a bunch of questions because I know she's got a ton of them. But Garrick, can you kind of tell us your story? Like, what's your what's your background and how'd you get into this?
1: So we've been working with wildlife my entire life since I was a child. It was a family endeavor. We were filmmakers with uh, National Geographic and uh, eventually Discovery Channel doing documentary films about wildlife. A lot of that in the later years were in the Rocky Mountains, and that included beavers and mountain lions and then three films on wolves. So we became really familiar with wolves over those years. We lived with a pack of wolves for six years. I was also going to college at the time. That was my my family. My father, Jim Dutcher, and his wife, Jamie, were there all six years. Uh, and I was there on and off for about a total of a year or so of that project. Um, since then, we've uh, moved into Conservation work and uh, nonprofit work with Living with Wolves to work to educate the public about wolves and the threats that they face, uh, and you know dispel the myths that surround them. Fantastic! All right, Danny, I'm turning you loose. Let's let's what you what you got.
2: Well, I guess I just wanted to go off of the last thing that you just said. Is some of those myths and misconceptions about wolves? I feel like what are what are ones that you think that the general public or people that you're constantly like that is not correct, or they just have a misconception of them as a species?
1: So, well, there's quite a few. uh, And a lot of them come from, you know, ancient folklore and myths and bedtime stories. And, you know, certainly we are... Made to fear wolves from those stories. And while wolves are wild animals and we shouldn't approach them and try to interact with them, feed them, things like that, you know, they're really not presenting any significant danger to people. Whatsoever. Uh, in the past 120 years, I, I said whatsoever, I guess there's the rare exception. In 120 years in North America, wolves have killed two people, and those were under very uh, wild wolves, um, under very rare circumstances. Captive wolves have had a few other issues, as have hybrid wolves being uh, had as pets. Then again, when it comes to the average 30 people that are killed by dogs in the United States every year, uh, hybrids are very seldom even responsible for any of those, but, uh, wild wolves p- present very little danger to people. The biggest danger is when rabies gets into an animal. And in North America, we have, Virtually uh, gotten rid of rabies, especially in the canine population of wild canines. So, that myth, you know, not to villainize bears or mountain lions because they're very important animals in the wilderness as well, but bears have killed about 60 people in the past 20 years in North America. Um, mountain lions have killed about 10 or 11 in the past 30 years. And again, with the millions of us out there every day, that really is. Inconsequential, even for the other carnivores and predators that do have a slightly greater impact than wolves. So the myth of the, you know, big bad wolf, um, with in with regards to the threat to people, is really not very warranted.
2: Yeah. I mean, those are such low numbers. I, I didn't even realize that it was that low for all of those wild animals, to be honest. The way that it's kind of like you you run across those like, you know, wild encounters with that they used to do on on certain channels and it made it seem like it was happening all the time.
1: Right. And so, you know, another myth is that wolves, uh, especially when they were being reintroduced because we had exterminated wolves in the lower forty eight, um, during the nineteenth and even part of the 18th century and into the early part of the 20th century. The idea of bringing them back came with a lot of myths as well, that wolves would destroy our deer and elk herds, that they would um, destroy the ranching economy, uh, the ranching industry, that um, they would eat all the, cows and sheep out there. Uh, And none of that has happened either, even though the recent legislation in some of these states, Montana and Idaho specifically, uh, is suggesting, the legislators are stating that wolves are destroying ranching and destroying wildlife. But Statistics from the USDA defeat that uh, theory, and also statistics from Idaho Fish and Game and Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, the wildlife management agencies, also show that we have very healthy deer and elk herds. In fact, in Idaho, we're right at about an all-time record high for elk, which is their primary source of food for wolves. Right.
0: Well I have a question real quick, uh, Garrick. Why did in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, why were they exterminated? What what was the what was it because people hunted them for, for their pelts? Or was it was it just defending themselves? Like what, what was that?
1: It was a historical belief that um you know, we were, it was manifest destiny. It was the period of moving west and taming the landscape. The idea that there was really no ecological benefit in having something that also eat, eats meat on the landscape. So we were sterilizing the landscape, we were getting rid of any potential threat. It wasn't until after we had done that that we began to see the ecological consequences and start to realize that those top level predators, top level carnivores, have a really important role to play in the ecosystem. So that's really where reintroduction came from, especially in Yellowstone. They had seen that the river and streamside areas had become greatly impacted by overbrowsing from elk. Um, and so the restoration of wolves have, have restored a lot of biodiversity to the park. And uh, wolves can have that effect if allowed to exist in significant numbers and have their natural role with their prey species. Um, and that's kind of where the, where the rub is today in these Western states.
2: Can you talk about them as like pack animals? Because we were just talking about that term lone wolf. So is that like an actual, (laughs) I'm like so curious about, and I also heard that um, when I was, I can't remember where I saw this, but when a wolf, if they come up to great, like if they're in a pack, it's actually the beta mail that's being sent out and not the alpha, I may have this like completely wrong, but I just am curious about them in a pack, what the hierarchy is. And if there is like that, an actual lone wolf or that's, you know, just a term that we use.
1: A lone wolf is a temporary situation. Okay. Wolves are by nature, very social. And that's one of the really special things about them. In fact, if you have a dog, you probably find your dog to be rather social, And all dogs, every breed of dog, is descended from wolves, not from coyotes, uh, not from foxes, not from any other wild canine. We domesticated wolves, and so wolves were by nature very social. They live in packs. They live in families. Uh, They each has an individual personality, just like your dog would. And so. A lone wolf, what happens is when wolves live in a family, and this might sound familiar, and they grow up, they become mature, and they start wanting to have their own relationship, perhaps to have their own family. Some of them do that, most of them eventually do that, and they'll leave their natal birth family to go find another mate. And so for that period, they're a lone wolf, but they're looking for other wolves, either a pack to join. And and that's a, it's a good biological function because if you just stayed in your own family, you would have inbreeding and genetic consequences from that. So wolves disperse and a lone wolf is called a disperser. Uh, and they may disperse thousands of miles. They can really travel broad landscapes, um, you know, very long distances. Uh, you know, we have a wolf right now that has traveled from, I don't think he's been picked up some sometime in April with his collar, but he had traveled from Oregon all the way down the Sierras of California, uh, went across the Central Valley near Fresno, um, crossed I-5 somewhere, and uh, got into um, San Luis Obispo County just, you know, not too far north of, uh, Santa Barbara. And so he's either, he has a GPS collar. So we kind of had a pretty good idea what he was doing. Um, but he was either following a scent trail of marked by another wolf, or he was a you know, pioneer that would be making his own scent markings, which would stay there and be detectable for many years by wolves that would follow. And that's how wolves find each other. Uh, And that's how dispersers two would come together and create a pack or find another pack as individuals.
2: But I'm so curious because then if he met, you know, in San Luis Obispo, if he met another wolf and decided to mate, that would be a completely different kind, right?
1: So that brings up, you just touched on something that's, and that's uh, very intuitive of you to realize. people always want to, our, it's our desire to label everything. Everything needs to have a box to fit in. Uh, and that's what taxonomy is, You know, labeling every type of species. And so there's been this long debate about how many subspecies of wolves there are. There was once 20 something or 30 something, and that's been trimmed down to four or five now. And what wolves do is that yes, they travel very long distances and breed with other wolves. And so an Arctic wolf could breed with a Mexican wolf. About 800,000 years ago, wolves migrated away from North America to Asia. They kind of disappeared in North America. They lived in Asia for a while. Then they came back across various land bridges during ice ages um, and came back to North America in three waves. The first wave became the Mexican wolves, and they pushed very far south all the way down to Mexico, New Mexico, Arizona, which is where they live now. And they're very, very rare. There's only about 170 in the wild. And then the, the second wave was the middle band of wolves, which are the gray wolves that we see in much, much of North America. And the last migration was the Arctic wolf, which is a very white wolf, which is also, these are all subspecies of gray wolves. And the Arctic wolf lives in the Arctic and they're mostly white and they're the biggest. Um, and they came the latest. However, they're all capable of breeding together and, and at times they will because they'll travel these great distances.
0: You talk a little bit about personality of these, uh, Garrick, like it, growing up with them, was there one particular one that you can kind of, that kind of stood out as, as a personality that you remember? Or Give us an example of like how a personality can differentiate from other wolves. Because I think sometimes people think of wolves because they see them in packs and, and, you know, sometimes you see them in films or movies and they're just kind of moving in a pack. They often feel like part of a group. How, uh, tell us a little bit about how the personalities differ.
1: Well, I mean, it's like you and I, it's like our dogs, um, they, they differ greatly. Some are more playful, some are are stiffer and more rigid in, in their interactions. Others are very caring and protective. Um, it really is how they are predisposed. You know, you had mentioned alphas and betas. There is some push to uh, not use the hierarchical t- uh, terminology that has been um, assigned to wolves. Uh, we still find it valuable, and a lot of researchers do, because there is certainly a, a fluid hierarchy amongst middle-ranking wolves, and then there is always the breeding pair in a pack. And sometimes more than one pair or more than one uh, female will breed. But usually it's just the alpha female in a study in Idaho. It was 98% of the time only the breeding pair bred. Anyhow, um, so the alphas are not dictatorial. They're not necessarily by nature super aggressive, and they don't necessarily assert themselves through force. And it, it turns out that the alpha female is the, the most uh, essential to the um, keeping the pack together, more so than the alpha male or the breeding male.
2: That sounds about right. I believe that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. took us a while to figure that out, but yes, of course, right? <laughs>
0: How big are, how big is a pack? Like how many, what's an average pack size?
1: Oh, well, that really depends. You know, unfortunately here in Idaho with how much we're killing them, it's rare for packs to get above five or six, uh, which is a. I'll explain to you why that is not very good for wolf survival. But, you know, in Yellowstone right now, the Junction Butte pack is well into the 20s. It might even be bigger than that. Um, An average pack size, if I were to say so, in natural conditions is probably around 10 or a dozen, um, you know, give or take. But it really also depends on concentration of packs in the area, the territory size and the prey availability, um, and how much bounty there is for them to be able to, you know, when there is, um, a lot of prey availability, that's when you'll see uh, sometimes more than one litter in a pack. And the litters only happen once a year during the spring so that the pups can grow throughout the summer and fall to get to be pretty full-sized in, in order to survive winter. And 50% or so of pups die in their first year. It's not an easy life hunting for wolves is really difficult. They only succeed about 15% of the time. They fail about 85% of the time. That's a broad average hunting bison. It's a lot less of a success rate. I think it's less than 5%. Um, you know, hunting white tailed deer, I think it can be a lot greater of a success rate, I think upwards of 25%. So it really depends on who's hunting what, but 15% of the time success rate is pretty good, a pretty good average. And also wolves, um, they get, Killed or injured a lot in the hunt because they don't have, they have to go in with their teeth. They don't have sharp claws. They don't have brute force that bears and lions have. And so they have to go in, you know, and face kicking hooves and horns, antlers, whatever it might, may be, you know, formidable defenses of their prey species. They get killed pretty often. So personalities, though, they, they vary greatly. Some wolves will select themselves to stay back with the pups to be puppy sitters and play with the pups, and they just want to play and kind of be goofy. And that's, again, a predisposed personality. Others will want to go out and hunt. So science has shown that uh, the the at least four need to be in a pack, to in a, in a hunting party to, to have the greatest likelihood of success, under four, and it, it diminishes greatly. So when you have a pack of five or less, if you have four hunters, that only leaves one to stay back with the pups. And that would be the bare minimum size for a a fairly functional pack. Because otherwise, there's always a pup sitter that gets left behind, or at least if there can be, there always is. And that protects the pups, keeps them near the den or the rendezvous site or wherever they are so that the pack will find them and keeps them protected from any kind of external threat.
2: Are they ever like petty (laughs) or have like (laughs) drama amongst each other?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there's personalities that don't get along with each other. They pick on each other. Um, There's, you know, it's, it's, it's very human in a lot of ways. It's really fascinating. And, you know, in our pack, the leader seemed to be an alpha male uh, by the name of Kamats. And he, he was very benevolent and he did not have to resort. He didn't need to assert himself. Uh, Very rarely would he ever do that. And it was, it was sort of just a leadership that he had through the respect of the rest of the pack. Mm. Do
0: the alpha males or, or anybody in the, do they show the fact that they are the alpha male in some way? Do, is it, do they, does their body change or are they bigger generally, the alpha males, or is there anything specific about it?
1: Uh Males are bigger than females, uh, about 20% larger. And they're, they take on different roles in the hunt, uh, seemingly because of that, um, or maybe, I don't know which is the chicken or the egg there, but um, the wolf that was the most subordinate in the sawtooth pack was one of the largest. His personality just lended himself to being submissive. So size, no. Um, You know, interestingly what we are seeing through research is that in a pack, for instance, and I was talking about the importance of the alpha female, if the alpha male gets up from a rest and everybody's chilling, He just gets up and wolves may take note of that and sit around and hang out. If the alpha female gets up and starts moving, they all get up. They all get Hmm. ready to move. I love that. (laughs) She has a stronger influence and they, they follow her. That is seen to be the case in in many situations.
2: It reminds me of those old Royal like dinner parties when the woman stands up and all the men like get up, you know, they're all standing up as she exits.
1: (laughs) Um, well, I'm really curious.
2: Yeah. I'm curious. And like all of your time, like, what are the things that you love the most about them that you're the most passionate about or like that you just love about wolves?
1: Most passionate is the unfair way in which they're being treated by state governments and, um, by certain members of the hunting community and by the ranching community, uh, not all ranchers. There's a lot of ranchers working towards coexistence and doing so very successfully. That might be what I'm most passionate about because it's simple injustice, um, and wolves deserve better. So do all large carnivores.
0: Hey, can I dig into that real quick? So we, I was trying to figure this out earlier. Is is it mostly the the the, the, the discussion is between? ranchers and conser- conservationists. Like what, what is, can you kind of lay out what's happening in that world for us so we can best understand?
1: Wolves rarely attack livestock, but it does happen. In 2020, I'm just gonna give you some numbers here. Wolves killed 173 sheep and cattle in Idaho, but that is out of two and a half million cattle and 220,000 sheep. So that amounts to them killing one in about every 12,000. Uh, that was out of a population estimated by fishing game to be around 1,500 wolves um, at its peak, which is summer, uh, right after pups are born. But, you know, for a livestock producer, maybe zero is a better number than 173 out of 2.72 million. And. Then it also just, it creates more work for them. They have to uh, find ways to try to keep their animals safe. But I want to remind you that these are wolves living, you know, that that we all paid for the restoration of through our tax dollars. And they they live largely, mostly, almost entirely on in national forests, which is our public lands owned by you and me and everybody paying our tax dollars. And so we have private enterprise of the ranching community leasing those lands to raise their livestock. It is our position that it is their responsibility to keep their animals safe on public lands and to minimize the conflicts and accept some of the natural threats that exist out there. Many more livestock are killed by bad weather, birthing complications and disease out there on the the land than by wolves and mountain lions and bears. But yet, we persecute those species.
0: Do some of the myths that we were talking about before kind of invade this conversation? Do you find that people, when you say like, "Well, I'm here to help," like make sure that wolves get a fair shake? Do they're, they're like, "Well, wolves are bad," automatically? Like they just come at it with that attitude?
1: Absolutely. It's it's uh, it's you know a lot of people's ingrained belief um, that that's the case. That that I mean, you'll you I mean, I'm faced with it all the time. You know, there there was a recent video of uh, a wolf was hunting um, an elk in Yellowstone from last week and, you know, the elk and the wolves are not really thinking about where a line of traffic of cars are because they're just doing their thing. So the hunt happens to cross right through the road. The elk runs right into a car and then the wolf follows and, you know, now he's got a meal because the elk uh, looked either unconscious or dead. And some of the people uh, commenting in the news thread said, too bad it wasn't the wolf. This is another reason to you know, get rid of all the wolves. You know, I mean, they're just a carnivore making a living and they're not that many of them. Yellowstone had 123 at the end of last year. You know, and we have 120,000 elk in Idaho, which is almost at the all time record high. Danny, you asked, you know, what I like most about wolves, uh, you know, The diversity of uh, personalities, uh, the compassion they show each other, the support they show each other within their own family. I think those are probably the things I admire most in them and respect and and that really resonate with me. I
2: still can't handle that comment because in my like before you got on, we were talking about how I saw a quiet place, too. And I was saying it was so lush and green because we didn't exist anymore <laughs> like my my first thought would be like you know too bad humans exist and that car was there the trap that that traffic that road that shouldn't have been there through their like actual the land park. like the wolves have always been here like you know the and same with all these wildlife animals we are we are the ones that are you know building on their land they're just doing they're trying to survive i mean i know Probably everyone listening to this knows this, but um, that was like my first instinct. Is is like, did no one say anything about the car being in the middle of this like park or something? No, it's the wolf. That's so hard to hear. That's so. I know you're you're doing such good work to try to uh, undo, but that 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 must be so difficult to have to look and see those comments of just people that are, you know, hating on a an actual like glorious. Animal that's only trying to coexist along us, you know, who is a dominant, brutal, violent like, we're the most violent species, (laughs) clearly.
1: That's right. And we have the greatest impact on, on, uh, the planet and all of its, um, natural systems. Uh, so, you know, that is something that hopefully the generations that follow mine will continue to become more and more aware of, and more people will hopefully fight for that awareness and, uh, stem the bleeding, so to speak, and, um, protect what we have left of wild places and, and wildlife because it's, you know, it is critical to our own survival. I mean, you know, medicine comes from the jungle, from all around. We find our medical solutions through natural compounds, natural chemical uh, reactions. We learn from nature and we, and it helps us survive.
0: Well, I have, this is a kind of a random question, but what, what, how long will they live for? Like when you have a pack, like are they, they 30 year animals, 40
1: year animals? What's a lifespan of a wolf? Not very long. In the wild, a 12 or 13 year old wolf would be very old. Oh, wow. But you know, similar to to dogs, uh, large dogs. Um, One of the sawtooth pack that, you know, he lived his life out in uh, captivity in a large 25 acre enclosure. He made it to 17. So captive wolves, 17, sometimes 18. That's really the, 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 you know, furthest they make it. In the wild, you know a lot of them die at two, three, four, or five, but you know some will persist and and live to twelve or thirteen.
0: and do they die mostly from like you were saying before, like accidents or is it hunger? I mean other than I mean I'm assuming a lot of them also die
1: by the hands of of humans but but what what's their main cause of death? Absolutely humans by far. Um, you know, in Idaho last year, uh, out of fifteen hundred wolves, people killed five hundred and eighty three of them. In Yellowstone National Park, because... This is a contained sort of contained environment but um you know limited space with uh, lots of prey way more prey than was probably there when there was a healthy balance of carnivores and prey species um you know wolves has since reintroduction and since mountain lions and bears have been allowed to return in numbers as well the elk population has come back down to a more sustainable natural uh, number but what we're still seeing in Yellowstone that may ease up because it's not necessarily characteristic of wolves everywhere is a lot of wolf on wolf uh killing, um competition for space and resources. But In places like Idaho and Montana, it is by far and away people killing wolves, hunting and trapping them. And trapping is a a really unfortunate thing. You know, just recently in New Mexico, the government there passed a law called Roxy's Law, uh, colloquially, to ban trapping on public lands. Uh, Arizona had done that years past. California has very strict trapping rules. There really isn't hardly any trapping allowed at all. Uh, Same with Colorado. So there's a move away from trapping and that's a great threat to wolves. And all and the other thing is, is that when people are out trapping, they always get, you know, half the time they're trapping the wrong species because traps are indiscriminate. Whatever likes the smell of whatever's luring it to the trap is going to step in the trap. So there's a ton of collateral damage in that. Kind of archaic and uh, outdated practice that we, you know, hope someday isn't going to be something we have to face any longer. But it does a lot of damage to wolves and other wildlife.
0: This is maybe very rare, if it is. Please feel free to say. But if you were ever to come across wolves, in say you're camping and out in the wild, what should we do if we see them? Will they will they even come up to us?
1: Very unlikely. That there are a few situations where that's occurred. Uh, there was a, in a big, um, sensationalized story out of Banff a couple of years ago and the wolf that came in and, uh, you know, actually bit somebody in his sleeping bag. They ended up killing the wolf. They found out that it was a very old wolf. His teeth had all worn down. He was starving. He was at the end of his life and was trying, was at this point kind of desperate. He didn't hardly do any damage at all to the person. I mean, he, he cut his arm, you know, um, but he didn't have, you know, much of the ability to kill anything at that point. So, um, no, I mean, I hear tons of stories, uh, of people camping and encountering wolves. Um, the, the, the thing I would be careful with is your dog. Um, because especially during denning season, wolves will want to protect their, their pups. And if they feel that somebody's dog is a threat to that, their attention will be on the dog. Um, so, you know, If you're in wolf habitat, it's good to have your dog nearby, not to let it run out very far. And and plus, when dogs run really far ahead and away from you, they're often harassing wildlife, which, you know, life for wildlife is tough enough on its own, let alone, you know, us having uh, any kind of negative adverse uh, impact upon them. So, um, you know, we I go hiking with my dog and I want him out there and I just keep him nearby.
2: I think my final thing I was just going to ask, because I collect so much wolf like art and memorabilia, do you do that as well still? Or is that like, does your place have like a lot of wolf?
1: (laughs) And a lot of it gets sent to us, you know, because of our history with all this. Um, There's still a lot of big fans out there from the films of the Sawtooth Pack. Um, You know, the films are Living With Wolves, Wolves At Our Door, and Wolf Return of Legend. And so those three, I think one is on Hulu, uh, they're available, YouTube, other places and, and, you know, discovery still sells DVDs of them and so on. So, you know, those, if you want to learn about the sawtooth pack, you know, you can find those, but yeah, we get memorabilia all the time, all all the time. You know, we've people approach us to, to co-produce products, you know, we've done all kinds of interesting things.
0: Do the wolves get fan mail? Do specific wolves get sent fan mail to you guys, like for, for the Sawtooth Pack members?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are people who are very passionate about individuals within the Sawtooth Pack, you know, very much picking their favorites and loving that personality, you know. are there, Is there any place you can see them?
0: Is there like a camera live streamed online or, or anywhere you can kind of like observe wolves that are kind of in a way for people at home?
1: In captivity, I believe some of the centers, uh, maybe the International Wolf Center in uh, in um, Minnesota, maybe the Wolf Conservation Center in uh, New Salem, New York, I believe. Um, I think they may have live cams for captive wolves. I think the Detroit Zoo had a live cam on their um Captive pack as well. But in the wild, no. Uh, The very best place to go see wolves is the northern range of Yellowstone, the Lamar Valley, and in that area. You know, depending on the time of year, your chances of seeing wolves, if you get up early enough and go for it, is, you know, probably in excess of 60 to 70% on any given day at the right time of year.
0: Is, is there like a wolf tourism world where people go Absolutely. and they'll,
1: yeah. And thanks for bringing that up, Gavin. Uh, we've, you know, want to point out always that uh, some of the arguments against wolves is that they're all red ink. Well, they're actually generating. Back in 2004 or six, uh John Duffield, a researcher out of either uh, Missoula or Bozeman, University of Montana or Montana State, I don't remember which one, did a, a study that found back then that, um, thirty five and a half million dollars a year were generated by wolf terrorism for local businesses. And you know, we work with people that run Tours in the park and try to you know, you know Nathan and uh, Nathan Varley and Linda Thurston of Wolf Tracker are in our opinion the the best operator for going into the park and seeing wolves. They've been doing it for a long time. So yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. And that study was done uh, quite a while ago, and park traffic has more than doubled since then. So I imagine, and it seems that there's a disproportionate amount of that traffic being directed at trying to find the large carnivores, mostly wolves, but also. Grizzly bears. So that number from 35.5 million has probably doubled or more since then. Great.
0: Well, gosh, thanks so much for being here. This was amazing. Yes. I have one question. Yeah, it's great, right? I, uh, uh, one question before you go, Garrick. I've asked this of all our experts. Um, is there something that you're specifically uh, way too interested in right now outside of your, world, your wolf interest? Uh,
1: you know, a passion of mine, two things in my life. I love celebrating cultural diversity. Uh, visiting different cultures around the world, seeing how they live, uh, interacting with them, learning from them, you know, as a way to kind of step outside of my own. And I love birds. I love going bird watching because it takes me to some of the most pristine ecosystems in the world. I get way out there in jungles, wherever, savannas, you name it. So places like that, uh, you know, I, I choose those passions because they bring me to the places that I want to see.
0: That's awesome. Well, Garrick, thank you for coming.
2: Thank and you. Danny,
1: Danny, thank you so
0: much as well.
2: Yes. Thanks for having me. This
0: is super fun. And uh I really appreciate you guys coming in. And Garrick, they can go to
1: livingwithwolves.org to learn more about. Is that right? That's correct. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Wonderful. All right. Thanks so much for joining me, you two. Um, I
0: appreciate it. And we'll be back next time with another episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right, everybody, that is the show for this week. Thank you so much to my guests, Danny Fernandez and Garrick Dutcher. Also, thanks, go to the Gregory Brothers for our theme song. Thank you to Eric Johnson of Lightning Pod for helping put this thing together. And I really appreciate you tuning in. Please, if you like to, follow me on Twitter at at Gavin Purcell. Um, As I've said in the past, I think there might be a Discord now and we'll find out. I will try to like uh, more regularly update this for now since I'm recording all of these kind of ahead of time and wanting to kind of get them right. I might re-record some intros and outros as we go along, but... We're trying to build a community around this, so enjoy and please you know, shout at me with any ideas for topics or guests you have. I would love to hear them, but thanks again for listening and tune in next week. We have about five more left in this first run, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your feedback on all of them. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.